Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McMusic. We're here to continue our expectations series today. Got a great guest for you, Sarah Ellison from The Vault. Glad to have you, Sarah. How you doing? Doing well. I'm glad to be with you again. It's definitely been a minute, so I'm glad to be back with you. Yeah, we, we've we've got to make this a more frequent thing, but uh, but we'll we'll definitely be targeting to have you on during the season, some during the preseason. I'm sure in camp as things are rolling along, and uh, and we'll look forward to that. Today we're going to talk though about John Simpson. And then Roquan Smith, a couple of players who look to be pretty important to the Ravens this season. Obviously, yeah, I think Roquan is obviously, um, I don't know, I feel like he's maybe supplanted everybody else, become the heart and soul of the defense, uh, maybe even above Marlon Humphrey there. Um, and that's not to discount Marlon, it's just to say how great Roquan has been in a short time here. John Simpson obviously could be important if he uh, ends up winning the starting left guard uh, job. And even if he doesn't, uh, perhaps a backup guy, but, um, you know, there's no nobody winning the job there yet. So, yeah, he could be pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with Simpson. Um, there, there are a lot of things about him that are that are very strange obviously a guy who who comes in from clemson he's in his fourth year now still only 26 in august uh but he will be an unrestricted free agent after the season so this is kind of like a, a one-year rental in a way uh they, they don't have a lot of time to figure out what they have or who they have with john simpson uh one thing that's unusual about him is He's got really left tackle size, which is something that we get to get into a little bit. A 321, 34 and an eighth inch arms, terrific size length combo. Um, one of a very large group of fourth year players. So the Ravens uh, risk losing him. But I think I want to get back to that size for a minute because I think that's going to be very important playing next to Tyler Linderbaum. Yeah, I mean, Tyler is obviously a, uh, a smaller center. Uh, does more with his speed, getting out in zone, never stopping, getting to different levels, all that type of stuff. Um, so being able to be have you know two bookends with Zeitler, you know, a pretty big dude, <clears throat> and then maybe somebody like John Simpson. Although I was looking at his size compared to Cleveland and um, and uh, Sala. And Cleveland's <laughs> Cleveland's like huge compared to these guys, both in height and, and weight. So uh, so it seems like either way, Linderbaum can get some big guys next to him at, at the left guard spot. <clears throat> but yeah, the, go ahead. They, they're, they're definitely choosing among some large players right now. You know, a smaller player who they talked about at one point was um, uh, McCary going there. And, and I think that probably is not the right fit in terms of, of that. I also think there's 
there's risks of having McCarry at left guard that then he's not available to play tackle when you need him. And, you know, the, the tackle situation is so barren behind Ronnie Stanley right now. You almost have to treat a loss of him like a loss of Lamar Jackson, almost in terms of the Ravens offense. Oh my goodness. I mean, yeah, it, it, I don't feel great about um, the tackle depth. I don't know uh, who Falele is yet. Um so yeah, losing losing somebody like um, Stanley would just be. I mean, you have to protect your quarterback. You have to. And Stanley, I think we saw started getting back to an an all pro level. So so I have a question for you on on John Simpson. So mm-hmm. uh, so some background on him that I certainly didn't know until I started preparing for this. That maybe your listeners might not also know because as you when you started out, you said it's really a really weird situation. Mm-hmm. And it really is. So I'll, I'll give his background maybe for the listeners who may not know it, um, at least in the NFL. And then I've got a question for you at the end of it. So um, obviously, as you said, 2020 uh, fourth round pick mm-hmm. out of Clemson, decent rookie year in 2020, starts all 17 games in 2021. All right. So going into 2022, he loses that starting role. I think he has it for one or two games and then loses it to Alex Bars, I think his name is. Okay, so what? some background to that is that he was in a draft class that was selected by John Gruden and Mike Mayock, right? Then they bring mm-hmm. in um, uh, McDaniels in 2022. So then his cut, them waving him was totally bizarre. It was like in week 14 or so. It was that meltdown game the Raiders had. They're playing against the Rams when Baker Mayfield comes in, <laughs> like out mm-hmm. of nowhere. They melt down at the end. Next day, oh, so that game, Alex Bars gets injured. He played. Simpson yeah. goes in, right? Simpson goes in, I think has something like 50, 52 snaps. Mm-hmm. He's cut the next day. So I'm like, obviously haven't watched the game, certainly didn't enough to like look at his tape. It's crazy that he did lose the starting job within that one within 2022, and then even more crazy that he gets cut because it's like he's still on his rookie deal. He's like one million a year. So my question to you is because I I try to look into some content creators similar to what we do. I heard people say he didn't deserve to be cut. It seemed like heads needed to roll the next day for such an embarrassing loss. And McDaniel's is still getting rid of the old regime's draft picks. My question to you is, did have you watched film on John Simpson? Mm-hmm. Cause I want to know his background. Is it that it, he got caught up in a bad situation with the regime change at the Raiders or have what you've seen on tape? Is it like, yeah, he was just playing bad and really did deserve not only to lose the starting job, but to get cut. Okay. So I, I do think there are reasons for optimisms, but I'm going to give you some of the bad first. Okay. All right. Okay. That is he's never really performed at a level. I think that, you know, probably the Mayock Gruden, administration thought of him that's it's hard to blame all those draft picks on Mayock even though he was the talent evaluator in theory but they the Oakland sorry Oakland at the time I guess Las Vegas really but for the entire time um ran on a strong coach system so it's almost like the GM reported to the coach to facilitate his ideal of where the franchise was heading it's very strange um, uh, it's, it's something Pat Kerwin has occasionally talked about is that he wouldn't mind going back to GM in a, in a strong coach system. It's like, 
being a GM for Bill Belichick or something. Bill Belichick is still in charge of personnel decisions and ultimately has the call on draft picks, but he depends on a, you know, a, a scouting regime to be good. And Mayock, I think, um, had some ideas. I think Mayock's um, uh, evaluations got them into a lot of trouble, very notably with some terrible first round picks, but Gruden is the eventual approver of those as well. Uh, mm. Arnett and, uh, and I want to call him Will Farrell, but it's Cleveland Farrell. Uh, the guy they drafted all the way up at number four, who a lot of people had drafted in the late teens or mid teens at the earliest. And Mayak said, I couldn't, I couldn't get a trade done to trade down. My response to something like that is if, if that's truly a place you think he's going to go is you didn't try hard enough because mm-hmm. you could have taken a loss on the trade, still gotten your guy at say 13 or 15 or whatever it would have been. And you wouldn't have to do that. Then they, Damon Arnett, another guy they famously drafted ahead of the Ravens one year that was the first real break from reality in terms of the picks. So Simpson, a guy, I, I really don't know that he was drafted too high in the fourth round originally relative to thoughts. I think Mel Kuyper thought very highly of him at the time, which is my recollection. I had him ranked as a number two guard. If I recall, if I'm getting that wrong, just confusing that with another player, um, you know, I apologize for that, Mel, but uh, he really did not work out at the NFL level for a few different reasons. And if you look at his PFF score, you see a guy who maybe, well, he's not that great, but he's not that terrible either. Maybe this guy's okay. One of the big problems with that is John Simpson's biggest problem has been flags. He's been penalized more than virtually any other guard in the NFL during his three seasons on a per snap basis. So give you the idea, 1,545 career snaps, 17 flags. Okay, that's over 1% of flags. Yeah, that'll get you you benched. But it's worse than that. Because I make the point on this show a lot that five-yard pre-snap penalties, specifically false starts, uh, could be delay of games that a center is involved, but specifically for a guard, it'd be a false start, are not that serious. It's five yards at the only, automatically, no loss of down, five-yard difference. Any post-snap penalties give the defense the option of accepting the play and are much, much more serious. His 17 flags, two false starts, 13 offensive holding, and two personal fouls. That will do it. So if you're looking for the explanation of why John Simpson was out in in Las Vegas, that's got to be reason number one, is that they just could not get that cleaned up over his period there. And he did, in fact, have a flag. I just looked in his last game. If you were looking for a okay. trigger reason why he right. didn't, but he hadn't been, he hadn't played since week two. He plays again, or week two or three, and then he played in week 14 right. and, right. you know, got back on the field. Then he has another penalty and, and they probably, you know, had, had had their fill already. At, at yeah. That point. Yeah. And was that one flag in that week 14 game or whatever week it was, his last one, was that a post-snap foul also I yes because every okay. one of his penalties that year was so it was either might have been a personal foul and that would have really been the kicker let me just check that up while we're while we're going through this but uh, if you go to nfl jesus that has a the yeah uh, by game penalties but let's not uh, hold up the yeah, show we don't need while, to get too, while, yeah while we don't need to hold it up but there were nine nine of his penalties either decline or declined or they stalled a drive and basically a decline penalty typically stalls a drive as well because you, mm. you're usually in a pretty sure situation that you've got the better deal on defense if you decline 
uh, say a holding penalty or whatever. Usually yeah. that means a drive ending play. Okay, so as the more offensive guru that or offensive line guru that you are compared to me, obviously. So when you have a guy that is getting called for holding a lot, is he losing battles or is yes. it bad pack? Yeah, it's yeah, not I'll, bad technique. It's like okay. okay. Here's what I didn't do, Sarah, and I apologize for this because you've got exactly exactly the right question on this. Is how do you accumulate all those holding calls? Also, how yeah. do you accumulate two personal fouls? I want to know that because that's just usually stupidity uh, yeah. when, when you get those. But the but the holding calls, I didn't go back and look at each one. So what yeah. I want to do is see, are they coming on run plays where he's main, trying to maintain his block as the player moves out of his frame such that he gets in that usual position? It's usually a matter of losing position too relative to that player such mm -hmm. that uh, he's got to give up on the block and he doesn't do it. So that's a common way. And tight ends and it oftentimes will pick up a lot of, of uh, holding penalties that way. Linemen are usually taught to be pretty careful about that. So yeah. they, they lose fewer of, of that type. And the other possibility, he's just getting beaten inside on pass protection. And if that's happening, then his pressure rate is understated by the number of penalties he has, in which case, and, and that's probably at least true to some extent, and he's having to make emergency holds to keep his quarterback upright. Oof. And um, hmm. well, this is this obviously isn't you know making anybody feel too good unless he's just turned things around. In that neither Cleveland, um, they're given obviously, or they actually. Let me start with this: Have you been out? Were you? Did you get to go to any of the mini camp? None of that. I haven't been there yet. Um, okay. Still working on that, but uh, Sala was at left guard for part yep. of that, and of course, none of this is in pads. So I think right, they're right, trying right. to get a look at some people. Cleveland played a little right tackle, as I've heard it. Simpsons played some left guard, so we'll see how this plays out. I don't think anything is yet determined. And a player like Simpson, who looks like an Adonis at left guard and plays like you know Grabby McGraberson, is gonna. <laughs> you know, is going to have some frustration that accumulates with coaching if that continues. Yeah. But I do think that's one of the reasons for optimism is that the Ravens coaching on the offensive line in particular is outstanding and yeah. their system is outstanding. And we're going to talk about Roquan Smith a little bit later, but he's a guy who stepped right into a Ravens defense, which had a great scheme and played at a much higher level than he had in Chicago. For, forget the, forget the, you right. know, Right, he was right, as right. good as they expected. I mean, he was he was as good as the Bears hoped he would be out of Georgia when he came to the Ravens, and he never was that good with the Bears. I mean, he had consistent problems with his play. So, right, anyway. right. Well, it's it's interesting. So so yeah, I guess so. I guess that's the reason for optimism because I mean, if he is winning a starting role by year two, you think that there's obviously something there to work with, and I I feel I feel bad. I wish I could give more to your listeners on analysis, but like I literally have not seen him. Like mm -hmm. I, I just haven't. I do plan out I should be there the first day of training camp. So I'll definitely get a look. But so all I can do is take from the guys that are there. There's very few guys that are there and can evaluate the offensive line. So it's interesting to me that it's, you know, the Jeff's Jeff's Rebeck, who I trust more than anybody out there, saying that he sees John Simpson as the favorite. Yeah. But but as you pointed out, pads have not come on. So that's when you're going to find out if he's cleaned up holding, he's able to hold his own, all that kind of stuff. And if they can, if they can coach him up. It probably will take live fire for me to believe that there's a lot of brother-in-law play during camp on the offensive line. 
you know, you don't want to, you don't want to really beat your guy too badly. You do want to try some things, but you don't want to beat your guy too badly. You don't want to really, in some ways, not let the offense run their offense. There's been a complaint of Joe Flacco's. <laughs> the defense just took, treated them like the, you know, three-year younger brother that they were and beat them all over the football field. <laughs> and some of these scored practices yep. they used to have. Remember, so, uh, anyway, I, I, I think they've, I think they've, discontinued that practice by the way i don't think that's going to be around it it wasn't uh you know last the last couple of years so anyway i hope it's not around anymore because i don't think it was it was giving them the result they wanted but let's go let's go back to some reasons for optimism if we can about him yeah so he's still a young guy you know still in year 25 four. yeah playing mm-hmm. play, at 26 in august but he's, he's playing for everything this year because this is his contract year if he were to have a good year, start the whole year, keep his nose clean, play well, nose clean, I mean, if you're a penalties, um, then he's he's a uh, candidate to get a pretty decent contract if he if he does it. Um, his absolutely ideal size and length for the left guard position. In fact, he'd be a great right guard um, if he can combine that with the upper body strength. And I haven't really got a handle on that yet. I think, you know, Vori's looks like a tremendous upper body strength prospect. Can't say that Simpson is exactly the same guy. If you look at the picture, Simpson in pictures though, I mean, he's a, he's, he's a huge. massively well-built man from yeah. top to bottom has that kind of Michael or um, top to bottom uh, uh, squared off frame. I'll call it meaning he's, he's not exceptionally sand in the pantsy, which they'd like to see with a lot of guards anyway, but he's also, um, you know, very well-built well built top to bottom. Probably more of what I would have said a right guard prospect because that that position more often has to torque a defensive lineman, turn him and pivot through the hole to allow the other blocks to flow through in a power scheme. So I would have thought, and, and most power schemes are right-handed. So Zeitler is very good at that. Yanda before him was outstanding at that. And, you know, it, it would have made sense to, to get Simpson to right guard, I would have thought. But, you know, Las Vegas might have liked something about he, the way he pulled, or they might have liked something otherwise about keeping him at left guard. Now, that position isn't open for the Ravens this year. It is open next year. And I think the, the guy who probably has the inside track on it is probably Voorhees because of just yeah. what style of player he is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's that's my question is uh, the Ravens. Uh, and again, we don't know exactly how they're going to look um, under Munkin versus um, – Greg Roman, but I mean, the polling from the left guard, I mean, powers constantly polling all the time. Have you seen anything on tape that lets you know that John Simpson um, can, you know, kind of move over, be agile enough, find a guy and, and pull over to the right side? I mean, Las Vegas pulled a lot less and, and I would need to do a very detailed analysis in terms of footwork and watch like a huge number of polls to really be satisfied that I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the answer is no, but I also think that, the Ravens offensive line coaching is so good that they've been able to work with some players who didn't have that kind of a pedigree for naturally having the agility to do it. And so yeah. players, players like Sala, uh, you know, I've been told this looked smooth uh, in terms of, of others uh, like Hurst and Bozeman in particular became very good pullers uh, and they were system guys. They just knew how to use their feet right. They knew the dance steps and, and sometimes more importantly, the center knows his first steps correctly so that there's no trip up risk 
mm-hmm. there. That's where a lot of it re- really exists. And if everybody kind of knows what they're doing, you shouldn't have a big problem. If you go back to old Ravens teams, the guy who really had a lot of problems, the two guys who really had a lot of problems playing together were Mike Flynn and Kedrick Vincent. They had a tremendous <laughs> amount of, of footwork issues playing together, and it, it, it just showed up all the time. They were tripping over each other. There's one really famous play where both of them on the same play stepped on Kyle Bowler's feet, each on one foot. Wow. And I, I, you think about how hard that is to do. In terms of how Kyle. You, Kyle's already <laughs> trying to, like – figure out how to play the NFL game outside of having his offensive lineman step on him. That's hilarious. (laughs) So it was one of the, one of the funny things. So, um, you know, I think the the whole coming to the functional line, uh, you know, in terms of how the coaches, but also it's, it's a line with good continuity. You know, the returning four starters, uh, these are guys who certifiably know how to play offensive line. Well, Um, Linderbaum is the, is, is the, what happens to Linderbaum this year is going to be highly dependent upon that left guard, I think, because Linderbaum's weakness is is pass blocking. There's no no secret there. His strength, obviously, is run blocking. I don't think that'll be a problem at all. Um, and he also had a lot of problems picking up stunts and picking up blitzes last year. Hmm. So what that means is that the left guard really has to help him out with that A-gap to try and help him pick up those. Well, last year, I had Ben Powers, who was one of the highest rated, rated um, pass blocking guards in the entire NFL scored equal to Zeitler on, on the year for me um, overall. So wow. very, very positive in terms of his, his play. He got a big contract to deserve it. Whoever they end up with at left guard is probably not going to be the kind of player Powers was. So it, it's going to be harder with Linderbaum facing one more pass blocking snaps in total and two more a gap pressure to maintain a positive trend in in where he wants to head as a pass blocker. So it'd be, it's a real challenge here for Linderbaum because of the left guard situation. It's interesting because I did um, on our podcast, I think it, yeah, it was this week we did kind of what both Jameson and Jeff had done, which is um, good, better, same, kind of mm-hmm. comparing the roster at each position to last year. And so I had said at the offensive line, and obviously this is an optimistic look, I mean, you're you're returning four of the five. You might be a little bit nervous about aging with Zeitler and Moses. That's something for sure to keep an eye on. But, you know, if they have the same level of play as last year, I think four of the five, I mean, the Ravens are in good position, mm-hmm. barring injury, especially, I mean, as you as we mentioned, Stanley's like the linchpin to it all. Mm-hmm. But um, so I had said that I felt like we might come out the same. Because while I think that Powers was solid, he was good, he was consistent, I also didn't view him as, view him as this irreplaceable pro bowler. So if you were to say good or better, same, worse, at left guard, are you optimistic that it can come out the same? No. You're no, not I, I, I would not be optimistic at all about that. So you, think Powers, you think it's going to be worse at left guard, no matter who wins it. Ben Power is very underrated in this town. And part of the reason is the problem PFF has in combining pass and run blocking scores. And that I'll, I'll make the same soapboxy statement I make all the time. No matter what offensive line position you're playing, pass blocking is more important than run blocking. However, for differentiation purposes, at the positions, they have a very high weight at center towards run blocking, a in-between rate of that overweights the um, uh, uh, run blocking at guard, 
And then at tackle, it's more what you would expect that pass blocking is more, is, is truly more important. And, and for that reason, what I'd say is if you're looking at PFF scores, just separate the two. Look at they're, they're very good at how they grade things, but look at the run and pass blocking scores separately. They're very good for comparing to other guards, other players at the same position in the league. I don't have another source. That's my go-to, my go-to source still. But I I really need to separate those two and not look at an aggregate score, which I think really loses a lot of meaning. And I got one other complaint too that happened to play very well for Powers last year. And there's a reason why I don't think the Ravens are going to be as good is Powers was the least penalized guard in the whole league. And if if you're replacing him with John Simpson, you yeah. have to, you know, a very different situation, probably. Yeah, yeah. And so you don't feel um, – maybe you don't have a feel. You don't have a feel for Sala yet, do you? Like what makes you feel like, you know – That he couldn't be the guy. Yeah, That he couldn't it, be the guy. It's it's fair. Um, here's what I'd say. All rookies, you know, I treat with a jaundiced eye. And almost every single one, and having graded these guys for, for their entire careers – Mm-hmm. You, you you notice that there is a distinct trend of improvement for their first four years. Almost all come into the league at a lower level than they end up with. There are very few counterexamples to that. And the guys that are counterexamples are usually guys who gave up on the game for some reason. So John Urschel is a counterexample. Um, Michael Orr is a counterexample, but for another reason, he changed positions. So he was he was at his absolute peak as a as a tackle in his entire career when he played right tackle as a rookie. Absolute ski slope of production from that from that point on, and it was a matter of switcheroos of positions. The whole Jared Gaither situation, his him and his agent deciding he had to play left tackle instead of right. When I thought he was on pace after that rookie year for a Hall of Fame career at right tackle, or pretty close to it, if he'd have just stayed there. Uh, just you, 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 you occasionally have issues like that. Most players, you know, even players like Yanda and, and, and pretty much any lineman who's in the middle of the pack or in the middle of the draft, you, you see significant improvement year over year for this first several years. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, Ken. Good to I, know. Salah also, <laughs> maybe, maybe the weight room would be an issue with him in this first year too. Is yeah. that I'm not totally convinced he's at an NFL level of strength. Yeah. So let's talk about what we've done to do this as a good and a great season. So I want you to start off in terms of define it however you want, but uh, what I've used is the 60th and 80th percentile for mine, just so people know. But tell us what you think would be a good season for John Simpson, and I'll uh, I'll follow up. Yeah, so John Simpson, I mean, if I'm putting myself in his shoes, I guess that's how I try to look at it. It's like if I'm in somebody's shoes, if I'm in his shoes, I'm a little bit nervous about the reputation I have right now, right, Mm -hmm. which is that, I had a starting job. I lost it. There's all these penalties um, that everybody can see that I've been doing. I had, you know, one start and then cut. And so to me, what would be good for him is to reestablish his reputation as somebody that's um, a viable starter again. And so um, I think it would be, you know, for good. Um, if, if even they, if even he could push it to where, he's opening up the season to be in a rotation mm-hmm. in that starting left guard spot um, to put some more film um, for everybody, for the league to see again. Um, and then, you know, great would be if he wins it, but good is if we, if he gets to the point where he's, he's, he's had the coaches be like, you know what? He's earned enough to at least be in a rotation to, to, to start. And then even if he weren't to win it, he, you know, come week 17 by the end, 
that he's put some stuff on, on films where it's like, see, I've gotten rid of my penalty issues. I've gotten rid of any issues that you may have seen. And I am a viable offensive lineman that can be re-signed after this season. Okay. So you're, you're very much in the same spot. I am. I'll just read mine verbatim because you, you said it so well, but I'd say avoids mistakes to stay in the left guard competition is no worse than the second option on the totem pole plays at a league average level in rotation or as a backup due to injury, reduces <laughs> penalties and improves technique uh, with, with good line mates. So just so people know, you did not yeah. send me your show notes. No, I did not I did. know that. You did so not. We're on the same I did not send it. You did a, you did, you did a great job there of putting it together. And uh, let's talk about a great season. You said it's obvious that he wins that left guard job. Talk about that a little bit and what that might look like. Yeah. So, I mean, great season. And I hope, and I will, let me put it this way. It's not that he just wins it because you could win it because Cleveland once again is disappointing. You could win it because as you said, Sala just isn't ready for NFL action as a rookie. He's got to put on weight. He's got to learn, you know, the NFL game. So it, to me, to be great, it's not that you just win it. It's that there was a good, a strong competition and you won it. Mm-hmm. And then you are able to win and then you are able to, to start 17 games. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a big condition there that you just tossed in there at the end. I said, wins the left guard job over Cleveland Sala takes a big step forward under good conditions and coaching. So nice continuity. He's going to be working with good coaching in Dallas Sanders in terms of cleaning up stuff that he's doing wrong right now, particularly with the penalties, but also with other pulling technique and whatnot that he might or might not have done well in Las Vegas. Here's, I think, the most important thing. Works well with Linderbaum in both combination blocks and in defending the left A-gap. It's the biggest weakness of the offensive line, as I've talked about before, and opposing defensive coordinators will bomb that spot with blitzes and with stunts if that proves to start being a weakness because there aren't a lot of other weaknesses in how the Ravens pass block. So that's I, I think that's really the, the, the big thing that the – Simpson, sorry, yeah, Simpson would need to have to help Linderbaum to defend that A gap well. Never at risk of losing his job, but solid performance prices him out of Baltimore. And I think that's probably what will happen if Simpson has the kind of season where he plays the full season as a starter. I don't think the Ravens can afford it after this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, if if they'll know what they have also. Um, in the background. I mean, I don't know. There's obviously there's Voorhees, there's Sala again. And then Cleveland is Cleveland's in his third year. Right. So he would still yeah, have yeah, fourth year one more year. year and maybe Cleveland could bust out. If it's not this year, I don't want to rule Cleveland out. I'm not acting like Simpson's going to win it, but if he doesn't win it this year powers, that was his fourth year that he really broke out. And so I wouldn't want to lose faith in Cleveland yet. It would be disappointing based off of, you know, some of the expectations coming into the league and maybe it was unfair, but, um, but yeah, I, I yeah, if 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 John Simpson has a great year, I agree with you. I don't I don't know that he they're going to pay him to come back. You're already paying Ronnie Stanley, and um, uh, well, is this is yeah Zeitler wanted a new deal, so we'll see what happens with Zeitler. But you'd think that Voorhees would be the next guy, um, and they wouldn't re-sign Zeitler if they if they have a lot of faith in in Voorhees. I think it's just it, it may even not be a matter of relative faith between the two. It may be they have to take a chance at some positions and this is one of the better gambles they can take cuz the Ravens are in one of the worst three-year caps uh look forward situations of any team. We just had a great pod with Brad Spielberger. We've done a lot of research on exactly that topic and it is scary in terms of how little the Ravens have, how much they're going to rely on their current cornerstone players 
to carry them through this period. Now they can, there is a little bit of room to, to, to get some additional depth pieces, but there really isn't room for additional cornerstone players. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, that makes it a little tough. So we'll see how this plays out. Well, they got a lot of cornerstone players. We're yeah. about to talk about one. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's well, take you one got into your, it. Yeah. Well, you got your quarterback, your left tackle, a, a, a corner, and then a, a linebacker who's the soul of your defense. That's a lot of corner stone players. Yeah, absolutely. And Roquan is the same age as Sean Simpson, just four months older. He, he was born in April, <laughs> uh, drafted eighth overall in 2018 by Chicago. A lot was expected of him, and and frankly, I think the Chicago system and the players around him were so broken uh, that it that it didn't allow Roquan to show up as he did here. But mm-hmm. you know, I did a fair amount of film analysis on him when he was acquired, and you know, there's just there's lots of plays where things are happening that don't really make sense, or he's not, you know, he, he's not. He, it, it, the one thing that was constant is he's always been a great tackler. But other things like coverage, he's been much better since he's been a Raven. In terms of the pass rush, he's done much more as a Raven. In terms of of him finding the spot to go to, he looks a little bit different than he did in Chicago, and, and definitely better. Um, it, you know, all the all the point was made about how much he was leading Patrick Queen around the field uh, in terms of finding the finding the spot to move to quickly, and Queen was keying off that. Is what I really mean. Uh, he, he just. Honestly, at Chicago, I didn't notice that in the kind of spades that he's shown it here in Baltimore. So remarkable change in terms of it. And the guy he reminds me most of is Marcus Peters coming to the Ravens, playing in a defense that was really set up for his strengths and playing at a higher level. But I think I don't want to take it too much longer, but Marcus Peters had something like a, a, a passer rating in the 90s, might have been 97 in his last year with the Rams, that half season when they decided they want to get Jalen Ramsey instead, he comes to the Ravens and by the end of the season, he's all pro. So the same kind of night and day switcheroo of who that player is based on the system. So great to see that. That's interesting because I'm sure we still will. I was, my mind was getting ready to talk about how Rokon changed the Ravens defense in in terms of effectiveness. True also. Right. Which we'll we'll still do, but Real, you just got my mind thinking. So, it's not only that he changed the Ravens' defense, but you're saying he himself changed. And are you, you think that, like, is that a credit to to Mike McDonald? Is that a a you know black mark on Chicago? Just not. It's like just a bad system for him. Like, can you dive in a little bit more on why you think that he he himself changed within the Ravens? But both of those things you just mentioned, I think that the Chicago system probably is not going to be as well coached as McDonald and all the good defensive position coaches that the Ravens have. I mean, they just have a a high quality system, which has made a a structured, rotational, outstanding defense for many years. And and, and they've they've kept the scheme through multiple coordinators. That has changed a little bit. You know, Dean Pease didn't like the dime defense, but and most of the other coordinators did. But some were a little bit less aggressive in terms of the pass rush. But basically, the scheme has been very similar for many years. The hardball years have always been been four two five front. You know, four, four man front. They're looking out at passing downs. Uh, so it's been a, a lot of similarity between how these how these teams have played defense, and that kind of a system lends itself the structure that lends itself very well. Now Roquan came in and he had ability to look around the field. And one of the things you notice you know, on inside linebacker play generally is if they line up against somebody, typically a running back where they're spread to just outside, 
and that running back may go in motion or whatever, but a lot of inside linebackers will not look around the field as they need to, to try and find out where are my other threats coming from. And that's when linebackers tend to get beat on the level two, level three area where I always complain about basically Patrick Queen's play over the years, but it's, it's not fair to blame only Patrick Queen because very few linebackers are really good at it. But Roquan proved to be a guy who brought some real talent to, to that. And even though uh, they had a pretty good completion percentage against him, his downhill play was good. And uh, his, his, his tackling continues to be excellent, made contributions in other parts of the game. But I think it was basically structure of the system, quality of the players around them. Both were a lot higher in Baltimore than they were in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so just speaking of like the change in Baltimore, like I wanted to go back and revisit because with Roquan, you've said some of like his individual stats, right? Like he was number three in tackles last year. I think he's number two in the league since he was drafted. Mm -hmm. He's always been, you know, this tackling machine. He um, he's super smart. He's super intelligent. Obviously, he's going to get the green dot, um, which is the the obvious move. And so to look at this, the Ravens defense, as, as much as like the Ravens opened up things for him, it was just such the perfect marriage because not only could he blossom, but then he helped his defense, which, okay, so so going into the Saints game, so this was um, so this is none of the stats from before um, <clears throat> or after Roquan was added. The Ravens on defense, and this to me is, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the most, probably the most important in terms of overall defense, um, total defense, rush defense, points per game. Ravens were ranked number twenty. Okay, so going into that, like. <laughs> what's that? So unRavens like, yeah. So unRavens like, number twenty, and he got traded in week nine. Is that week nine? Yeah, uh, I showed up for the New Orleans game, which I. I think you're right on that. I'd have to look it yeah. up here. Okay, so the, I'm, what I'm saying though is, it's like it's not like it was one or two games where it was like a low sample. It's basically half the season, right? Mm-hmm. So they rank number 20 before he joins. The next half of the season, he comes in. I'm not even just saying this is what they ranked from the time that he was here till the end. So you would cut out the first nine weeks. No, this is their total defense points per game. They shoot all the way up to number three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean. That is bananas to me. Yeah. Absolutely only, bananas. Only two times during the rest of the season when Roquan was around, did they even give up 20 points in a game? And I, I guess they did in the playoff game too. I got to think about what's 24-17 in the playoff game. Yeah, yeah but, but remember there was that re, the fumble return for a touchdown. So that's not on the defense. You can, you, you can, you can certainly say that. And, and frankly, to have all those low-scoring games where Tyler Huntley is a quarterback – a lot of that time is incredible because, you know, you don't have the same kind of possession control you have with Lamar Jackson and you're giving up, a, you should be giving up a lot more possessions and a lot more risk of scoring there. And Rokon and, and the defense really held it together. I think that's really why, you know, so many of the players were down on how the season ended is that they know that the Ravens were so damn close. I mean, they were Lamar Jackson yeah. away from being a very serious Super Bowl contender last year. It's so, I know it's so rough. It's hard to even think about. It's hard to think about 2019. It's hard to think about all these, the the whole, since 2019, it's, it's tough to think about one other stat really quick that, that his arrival certainly changed. I'm not, I know it's not only Roquan Mm because people were getting better, but 
red zone defense before he came uh, through week nine. They were ranked number 23 in the league. Okay, 61.3% giving up touchdowns. By the end, they were number three in the league at 46.4. In the, I mean, in you, the, after Roquan, they were number three, or, or for the whole season, they were number three after. For the whole season. So for the whole season. So that's why I'm saying these stats that I'm giving you, it's not week 10 through 17. It's week which, one through 17. It's week one through 17. So I'm saying that's much harder to change. Oh, it's yeah. not like here they were with Roquan, throw that all out. Here they were after Roquan. No, this was their defensive ranking one through 17. So that's even a bigger jump knowing that you still have those bad numbers in there. He brings them all the way to number three. Remarkable. It, it's remarkable. Yeah. That's, it's absolutely that's, remarkable. That's, that's great research. I, I, it's, it's the kind of thing that I should, probably should have tried to be prepared with in terms of just how much he improved the team defense because I think that's where a lot of the Roquan effect was. Yes. Uh, he, he didn't take over the green dot. You know, still had Chuck Clark. Uh, I think you know, the, the green dot for him will be calling a play uh, on the field, and that's great. How I look at his on-field responsibility is more of front seven alignment. So he certainly got it, whether it's Queen or Simpson, that's, a, that's, a, that's going to be a cat to herd at that other position. So he's going to have to make sure that that, 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 that player is in the correct position. But all the, all the front guys, you often see an inside linebacker, usually the mic, will walk up to the line of scrimmage and pat an offense, a, a defensive lineman on the fanny. And it usually means mean, move one gap over, Either he sees something about motion or they, they, they're lined up improperly for the way the offense is lined up now. And it's that sort of alignment that you, that you really hope Roquan can deliver on field. And then during the play, I mean, he, he leads every play if he did what he did last year again. I mean, he's, it'll, he directs others by his own actions to the gap and the point of attack. Yeah, and um... – <clears throat> I have a question for you that's off topic, but I still want to do it on air. So I'll, I'll leave it. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole before we finish on, on Roquan, mm -hmm. but I do think that Roquan kind of affects the question I'm going to ask. But so I was listening to um, Chuck Pagano. He was on Glenn Clark show. Um, it was either last week or a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And Chuck Pagano obviously was a coach in Chicago. So he's coached both Ray Lewis and he's coached Roquan Smith. And I thought that um, a, uh, Glenn Clark had a great question for him. He's like, you know, people will ask the Ravens all the time, why are you spending $20 million a year on an inside linebacker? Such an un undervalued um, or a less, less valued position. Money's going to quarterbacks and then people who can protect a quarterback and who can go after a quarterback. Like, can you explain? He's like, because he's like, people just don't understand how it just changed the Ravens' defense. They don't understand it. And he was like, can you try to put, like, can you explain it? And he said, look, after working with Ray and after working with um, Roquan, he's like, you cannot put a price tag on the intangibles. Like, there's something about him, and I'm not, I mean, Ray Lewis is even still another level from Roquan, but, but, but so I'm not saying they're the same. But what he was saying is like, as a coach, he's like, I cannot explain to you how valuable it is to have essentially another coach on the field. Right. He was like, you just, you just can't put a value on that. He's like, so I can put together a game plan and I can bring it to Ray or I can bring it to Roquan and I can say, what do you think about this? And they'll like either confirm stuff or totally rip it up 
or be like, coach, this isn't going to work because this and this. And it's just such a different feeling to talk to a player who is so smart that there's as smart as like the defensive coordinator, but is in the battle. And he's like, you just, he's like, you can't put a price tag on that. The intelligence, the versatility, the physicality, the, the being able to have him on all three downs. He's like, there's so many linebackers that you have them on for the first two. Then you got to bring somebody else in for the third. He's like, these are all things. He's like, so the league can undervalue that and not pay it. But he's like, obviously in Baltimore, they've proven that it pays dividends when you have another coach on the field and it doesn't matter that it's inside linebacker and that the rest rest of the league doesn't value it because we've seen proof for decades, the massive impact that it can have that you just can't put in a statistical number. Yeah, I I would agree a hundred percent with that. I think there's so much else in terms of what Roquan could bring to this team and what Ray did bring to this team in terms of being a North star for work ethic, say, you know, for, for accountability. I think they got a lot of that from Calais Campbell. I think they got some of it from Justin Houston, you know, in terms of a veteran presence who, who really um, told people how seriously they have to take football. I mean, I think one of Ray Lewis's uh, comments over the years was, you know, to kind of put off uh, marriage until after football. There's a lot of good reasons, by the way, why a football player should do that, <laughs> but, but uh, a lot of good financial ones, but in terms of, of, play i heard eric weddle comment on it too once they asked him i think it was hayden hurst was coming in for his first camp and he said you got a girl here and and, and he said no not yet and, and he said all ball huh that's great and, and it's just a, it's is exactly <laughs> the kind of thing you like to hear it's, it's a 12 month a year job you know and, yeah. and you know a family you know as much as you know i know you love your family and, and <laughs> uh, uh, can be a distraction from really making professional advancement well, yeah, I, I'm going to disagree with that. But <laughs> um, I mean, I get your point where it's just like you're all in and you're not distracted. But there's a gazillion things that can distract players. And to me, family's one that can um, keep them away from the bad distractions. OK, good so, point. Very good point. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So but I will also say to your point that it was even more so. So when you talk about a mentality, right, or or if I'm here working, so you should be here working like he was here for football schools, mm-hmm. not just like the the OTAs but football schools so that's that's a level that people are like oh crap Roquan's there maybe I should be there then on top of it and I think this plays into the red zone stat that I just um talked about how many times did the Ravens defense melt down in the fourth the fourth quarter yeah and so like even when in those in that Ray Lewis era when a team actually somehow found its way into the red zone as a as a spectator, I'd be like, I still wouldn't, I'd still be like, what? So what? So you got a field goal. Like, because it was like, I knew Ray and Ed were down there, right? It was like, just because they're in the red zone, that doesn't mean nothing in Baltimore, right? We they, Whether it's a field goal or they're still going to, they can force a fumble, they could get an interception, whatever. And so, like, I've had Roquan on our show um, uh, at least once. Um, and, and I've heard him on other stuff. He's not as loud as Ray, but when he does talk, he is so, he's just as arrogant as Ray was. Mm -hmm. He wasn't as long winded, but, Mm -hmm. and, and I don't even know if arrogance the right word, but it was like, when he says, we want all the smoke, we want the Bengals back. We want the Bengals back. He doesn't care that that's locker room fodder. He doesn't care about that at all. He's like, bring us the smoke. We should have won that game. You're lucky that you got, you know, the the fumble return. 
or or he's like he just talks so big and that's a bad thing if you're like a rookie and you haven't proved yourself yet but when you're a guy like Roquan that backs it up that kind of talk it does it changes the mentality of your defense it's like you're out there on the field and you're not like shaking in your cleats you're like look at Roquan he's he knows we're going to stop it so I'm I know it too and so I think that even that it's not it's like you said it's not just the smarts it's not just the intelligence it is all of that but it's also like this mentality that Ray had that it was like no 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 this isn't happening in our house yeah that's I, I I there needs to be at least someone on the field who does that and not everybody has to be that kind of a vocal fire the team up leader but a team can really benefit from that Terrell Suggs did a lot of that for the Ravens. Mm. I, I I think in terms of what he did, Ed Reed, not that kind of leader, but a great positioner of the secondary uh, from the back end. And and uh, Eric Weddle, I would say not really that kind of leader, but he was a pretty mm. good positioner of players in, in the secondary. One of the things I remember, by the way, and this is a little bit of an offshoot, I want to go let you get to your rabbit hole too before we run out yeah. of time here. Um, is, is one of the times when defense was being scored and it was Weddle's First camp, I believe, with the Ravens. Um, I suddenly hear this: this the offense is on the field. Well, both the, obviously the offense and the defense are on the field. But the, the, one of the defenders from the sideline or somebody from the sidelines goes, "You look like the Bad News Bears offense. Look like the Bad News Bears." I just would not stop. <laughs> and I, I said, "Dusky's standing next to me," and I said, "Who is that?" Eric Weddle. And, you know, it's one of these things that it's like, wow, you know, he's, I bet he's going to have a talking to about that because <laughs> just something. That, uh, so, uh, I love the trash shock at the, in those yeah. the practices. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was a trail thing. T- tell me about your rabbit hole and we'll finish up on Roquan here first. Okay. So my rabbit hole is this. So it, it has to do with the cornerback um, position, mm-hmm. um, but, but related to, to Roquan and this, that, the Ravens were reportedly in on um, Amos, right? What's I don't mm-hmm. remember his full name, who went to the Jets after Chuck Clark. Poor guy. Wish him the best. Right. He, he had two visits, I believe, reportedly in Baltimore. Do you feel like, because we keep Amos, talking yeah. about who's going to be the third nickel. Do you feel like, I don't know. It, it, could there be a, a safety signing or could there be something with Roquan now having the, the green dot? Is there something where is Kyle Hamilton? Can Kyle Hamilton be the nickel? I guess I'm just wondering mm-hmm. your thoughts on, on the, the nickel corner and what could happen there. Just was on the radio talking about this this morning and did so oh, okay. in a poll last night. So there, there are, I think the Ravens have four legitimate options. They are one player at least, frankly, short in the secondary corner outside cornerback depth is terrible. Slot yep. corner, if they don't play Hamilton there, is terrible. Uh, you know, yep. Pepe Williams is the best guy they've got. And honestly, I don't think he's good enough to enter a season if you're trying to win a championship. That's a very important position. At safety, they have um, Geno Stone as the backup. It would be a fine, strong safety. He's really a free safety, but that's okay. Play cover two on the back end. He, that's exceptionally what he would do exceptionally well. Filled in for Marcus Peters last year and was very good. So I think if you're talking about who's their next best defensive back, I think it's Stone. So that would say, well, why don't we just move up Hamilton and play him at slot corner? Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that while I'm sure Hamilton would be fine there because he was last year, the Ravens need to make the Hamilton decision first and not let the tail wag the dog. They need to let Hamilton either play strong safety 
or play slot corner. And I don't even think a hybrid role really is appropriate. I think it's one of those two. Um, and be the superstar that he can be. So figure out where he, he has his superstar traits can have the biggest impact on the game because the difference between Geno Stone at safety and um, uh, Pepe Williams at slot corner is not as great as what you potentially can get out of Hamilton. So I think that's the, that's the first thing is decide where Hamilton plays. And then they've got multiple options in terms of how they address the slot still. So they can before, give- before you move on real quick. So mm-hmm. how, how often under Mike McDonald are the Ravens in a nickel defense where I guess, cause you said that you don't think he could go back and forth. Very high probability. Very, very, it's very high. If they chose to put Hamilton at nickel, is he then on the field 80% of the time? Now, I think the, the role he would have in that case is he, he plays nickel and he plays strong safety instead of stone on plays where they only have four defensive backs. And I, I don't consider that a hybrid role. I'm not, he's not a, he's not a free roving all over the field player. He's got either strong safety responsibilities or he's got nickel responsibilities and he, he can change it by play. If anybody's smart enough to do both jobs, it'd be Hamilton Okay. You know, in terms of, of being a very sharp, a guy, and I think it's really comes down to a question of where do Hamilton's traits play better? He, he has mm-hmm. tremendously valuable traits at the nickel, which I would not normally associate with the position, but he has hulking size, which is hard for quarterbacks to throw over. He has mm-hmm. slippery ability as a pass rusher, which is really nice. He's an incredible downhill tackler, which is very valuable at that position. And yes, he probably would get beat on a whip route more often than other slot corners that the Ravens could go out and get. But uh, I, I think in general, it's a great package, and that's why he. So you don't you don't so see him if he's the nickel corner, and he's on the field eighty percent of the time as a nickel, and then in a in a four defensive back, and he goes back to safety. You don't see that as a hybrid. That's just like a twenty percent is like. It's 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 he's playing two distinct positions rather than a. I might be anywhere on any play. You know where uh, he is based on the number of defensive backs the Ravens have on the field. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's one option. Sorry. I cut you off when you're going to go into another one. Yeah. So, so it's it, option. Option number one uh, is they go out and they get an outside corner, which I think is where the bigger need is honestly anyway. So Marcus Peters is still out there and other teams are talking about him too, by the way, the Raiders are talking about outside side Marcus Peters, but if they, if, if the Ravens were to get Marcus Peters, then they have three outside corners. I think honestly, the best play at that point is still use that as depth. But and and allow each of those guys to get some time on the field. Humphrey probably plays all the time. Maybe Yasin and um, Peters play a little bit of rotation. They could even play a little bit of situational football if they want to play Yasin on early downs and Peters on obvious passing downs. If you really want to get you know weird with it, but that that is they have multiple ways they could get Peters on the field for more downs. But probably he's a depth guy that. Um, it's rotation, and then one takes over when one gets injured, which is bound to happen. So if they get another outside corner like a Peters or somebody else, then you see Humphrey moving into nickel? It's, that's That would be a possibility is they could move him to slot. And Humphrey is plenty good at that position. And, you know, we saw physicality yeah. traits from him last year, including rushing the passer, making tackles. Higher injury risk, I believe, and also um, – uh, devalues some of his positive traits. So his physicality 
as we've seen in the past, plays very well at the high point of the ball if he has enough time for that ball to travel and him to get to the receiver and the high point. So baseball bats for arms. That's what I always talk about with Marlon Humphrey. After the catch, he can punch it out. At the point of attack, he can punch it free. Um, that's That physicality, and I, he's got a whole bunch of other positive traits too. That's not all Marlon Humphrey does. But if you take that away from his game by moving him to the slot, then I think that would be an unfortunate reduction in who yeah. he is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. And then they so could give are... it to either Pepe or they could give it maybe to Ardarius Washington if either of those guys are deemed really ready to go. And I think the preseason may tell us something about that as far as yeah. uh, the, those guys will each get playing time, probably both at slot, and we'll see if, if uh, either of them is really ready to go. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I, I appreciate uh, what you're doing here. Um, in 2023 for Roquan, going back to him, uh, yep. take over the green dot, on-field leadership of the front seven. We talked about that. Continue with outstanding reads. And I'm talking about run reads, but also pass reads in terms of, of figuring out how he, how far he needs to drop and, and where his threats are coming from the field. I'd like a slight improvement in his coverage results from last year. Cut 30 to 34 balls against him, and the yards per target were not good. I think it was 8.7 yards per target. It's the only negative in Roquan as a Raven. He doesn't show up as a bad coverage player by PFF um, factors. And typically, inside linebackers are responsible for covering running backs who typically catch almost every ball that's thrown to them if it's a screen pass. And then it's a matter of them making the tackle. So it's, it's, it's not fair to judge him by the completion percentage. What was a problem was a few, a, a few big plays happened on his watch, and that I want reduced. Is this your good season, or you're just no? That's him? that's me oh, looking okay. at 2023 and saying that, that's, that's something I'd like to see. But you go ahead okay. with the, with your good season if you'd like to start us off. <laughs> it's funny with with Roquan because he's already set the expectations so high. But it's like what I want to say for good is really great, you know. So, I mean, good is just—I don't know. Good to me would almost be a step back from what he did last year. You know what I mean? You so are like, right on the money. Okay, <laughs> it's like you're reading my sheet again. <laughs> so. Okay, yeah. I mean, good is like he's—I don't know. He's st- good. Is he's still playing all the snaps basically? Um, good is he's, he's, you know how to give him a step back injury to me would be the biggest step back. I mean, maybe he would get worse in coverage. Um, maybe he, he had five or 4.5 total sacks. Maybe he has less sacks. Um, you know, continues, as you said, maybe gives up some, some bigger plays. Um, maybe doesn't have the effect on the whole defense that he had. I mean, I don't know. I don't I have a hard time seeing him step back. Yeah, Let's put it I, that way. you know, I think that's fair, but you know, I, I, even judging what the 60th percentile is, uh, um, you know, if if he were to play as good as he did on a per snap basis for the rest of last year, I mean, he's a candidate for defensive player of the year. He he wouldn't necessarily win it. You know, there's usually some flashy pass rush number, number of interceptions, but if if the Ravens are the best defense in football and He's in the heart of that, and and people realize what's going on. I think you know he's right in the discussion for that. So I'm not expecting per snap productivity to be at the same level. I said play drops off slightly from the outlier 2022 second half with the Ravens. Parenthetically, perhaps in run defense where he's never been this good before. Now, mm. that's it. 
how's he going to drop off? How is Reeves going to drop off? You know, wouldn't that be one of the hardest things for him to take a step back in? But I don't know. Maybe he gets there a little later, doesn't tackle as well, whatever it might. But even so, he'd remain one of the best inside linebackers in the game due to a broad set of positives, awareness, and on-field leadership. I think he can probably still make the Pro Bowl if he drops off in per-snap productivity from where he was in the second half of 22. In fact, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, but I wouldn't even make that a condition. So I, I'm yeah. with you. I think a small drop-off would still be a good season. Yeah, yeah. And maybe even a great season for some people's standards. So I think a great season is what you just said, but for him, it which is to win like defensive player of the year. But to me, for him to do that, so so a great season is to continue what you just said was an outlier, like second half of a mm-hmm. season, um, and continues to. So to me, part of my analysis for him will be the defensive rankings as a whole because he had such a huge impact. And we talk so much just there about like how, how in some ways he affects the defense like Ray, Ray Lewis does. So to me, it is, is to keep him the whole defense in this top three in, in most, most big categories, right? Not all of them, but then for him to win defensive player of the year, he would have to not only repeat what he did last year, but I think he would need more splash plays. Yes. So he would need like more force fumbles. He would need like a big play. Um, maybe he returns a fumble for a touchdown. It's, it's, it's having a signature moment on, on in prime time. It's, it's, um, can he get an interception? Can he have a bunch of force fumbles? Can he not a bunch, maybe like two or three, maybe two or three interceptions, um, maybe more, I don't know. It's tough to get sacks as an inside linebacker, but he did. I think his highest was five. I think it was his rookie year. He had 4.5 total between the two teams. Can he continue that? Like get after the quarterback, have maybe five or six. Um, so to me, it would be the things he did last year. And then he has those splash plays, which puts him on the radar to become a defensive player of the year. That would be a great season. I, I, I think on the radar for defensive player of the year, even, you uh, know, on the radar, probably be a, 88th or 90th percentile season for Roquan, but but if he if he were to actually win it 97 or higher, so I, I'm definitely not asking for that out of an 80th percentile result. But what I say is he proves his 2022 second half was not a fluke by effectively repeating it with somewhat better coverage results. And here's I think the most important point, and the only point I'm really adding to what you've said is that Queen and Simpson continue to thrive next to him. I think that's very important. He has got to lead the next weak side linebacker to the promised land in terms of consistent play. And, you know, Patrick Queen will be it for a year. Probably that is it based on the number of cornerstone contracts the Ravens have. I think he'll, he'll be gone. And then Simpson needs to be the next one. It needs to be kind of seamless in that, in that regard. And probably we see both of them at least for some time this season, I would think. Um, and then I'd say the Ravens pass rush continues to shine with contributions from inside linebacker. And it does not have to be him. It could be Queen. It could be mm-hmm. what Roquan does to enable Queen. It could be his first pressures leading to other sacks, whoever that might be. And they've had great scheme pressure from inside linebacker that showed up after Roquan arrived. That you know, if that doesn't drop off, boy, that's going to be a big positive in, for both Queen and Roquan in terms of the remainder of their careers. Because I think it'll be proof in the pudding for, for Roquan in terms of his leadership and the current contract. And it'll be a great feather in Queen's hat for finding that yeah. next contract. So, uh, and then on-field leadership is apparent. 
um, both before in terms of the snap, in terms of repositions, and after the snap, in terms of effectively de- demanding accountability. So mm. what, do I mean, what do I mean by that? I want him to go to the player who made the mistake, be the big brother, puts, him, puts, the, puts the arm, metaphorical, arm around his shoulder and says, hey, you need to be over in this position here. And that guy to take it like it's the voice of God when he, when he, when he says it. So um, when we've seen other players demand accountability, in the field, it's not always positive. You know, Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters in a, in a big way will cock their head in a funny way when they get, um, you know, one of their teammates lets them down in terms of position relative to them. And yeah. uh, we've seen that from other players as well. The guy who I wanted to kind of emulate, but then have the other characteristics that make him give him the voice of God is to, um, uh, uh, to be more like LJ Ford, where the actual physical contact is a low five, where he draws the player's attention. The other player hears what he has to say, tap of the helmet, you know, positive kind of thing, or, you know, things we saw from Ray for a lot of his career. So I think if he becomes that sort of on-field leader, I don't know how he could fail at uh, in this season. Yeah, well, it's funny because you, you use the analogy of the voice of God, which um... – obviously in one sense means, and I think the sense that you're meaning is that it's just, it's this authoritative voice that like you want to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one you talked about with Marcus Peters were like, you're angry. That's just like, uh, to me, voice of God is it's, it's like, um, it's also like a respect thing. It's less about, oh, I'm, I'm afraid of getting chewed out. I'm af- and then, and then I want to fight back cause you're disrespecting me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes like, a, um, like yeah, you're trying to keep me. You're trying to keep me accountable, but the way you're doing it is creating more friction and making yeah. things worse rather than making it better. Whereas, like if you if you continue the analogy of voice of God, like it's coming out of respect, and you don't want to let God down. You're not yeah. fighting against him. You don't want to let him him down, right? So it's, it's like, exactly, like like your father is talking to you. Like, yes. like you know his intentions are only positive for you. Yes. And, yes. You know it's it's that maybe that's that's the better way to put it. You know, a lot of people have a, have might have a problem with with me saying it in that way but in in some i think sports analogies we we do that sometimes so uh yeah for sure absolutely fantastic have getting to have this talk with you sarah i I miss you on the show i want to want to have you back as often as we can during the season and uh hope your show is going well as well tell folks where they can talk to you online or listen to your show yeah i appreciate that um so on twitter i'm at sg ellison and then our uh, podcast is wherever you get your podcast, same as Ken. And we're also on YouTube, um, the Vault Podcast. Uh, and so, yeah, just search it up. And and we're more of a very different from yours, right? Very, very. That's why I like we we complement our podcasts, um, complement each other. We're we're a little bit more quick hitting daily podcast, talking about the news and giving opinions on that. Um, so so I love how our podcasts complement each other. We're both Blue Wire. So I love that we have that in the family. Yeah, we actually are no longer Blue Wire, but we. Oh, you're we, not. Yeah, we moved on to a, to another platform, but uh, oh, we'll uh, talk we can talk that. about that off air. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, we uh, I I appreciate the kind words. I I think there there is room for a lot of different types of content, certainly mm-hmm. uh, within the Ravens community, and I think we have a lot of good podcasters who who deliver it in various ways and. Uh, you know, look to the vault as one of the one of the really good shows uh, that that's provided by the Ravens family. Appreciate that. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, I'm very much an open mic policy, particularly during the off season. Love to hear from you. Hit me up with a DM on Twitter with whatever idea you have. I'll, we can do that one play. We can talk about some 
uh, general manager focused topic. We can talk about the Ravens cap and how you think it ought to be spent. Uh, talk about a particular metric that you think is not used yet or you think you've discovered. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. And uh, just hit me up again with a DM on Twitter. I'll get right back to you. Sarah, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ken. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Site. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.